0: One, two, three, four. Welcome, the crazy Chester. Welcome, the crazy Chester.
1: Crazy Chester Radio Hour. My name is Andreas Warner. I'm a record producer, songwriter, and owner of Crazy Chester Records. The theme song you just heard is performed by Wet Willie's Jimmy Hall, and Funky Chester. Funky Chester is drummer Lynn Williams, bassist Paula Sola, and myself on guitar. The Crazy Chester Radio Hour is a weekly music talk podcast featuring an eclectic group of guests with musical hearts, minds, and souls. And many of the episodes, will dive deep into the rich history of music mecca muscle shows. My guest today is Chance Martin, a.k.a. Alamo Jones. Chance was the longtime sidekick of both Johnny Cash and Cowboy Jack Clements and has been living a most interesting life in and around music, as you will soon learn. He's a larger-than-life character and best known for hosting the Alamo Jones show on Sirius XM's Outlaw Country channel. Please welcome to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour the man, the myth, the legend Chance Martin A.K.A. Alamo Jones, the voice in black. Chance, thank you so much for being my guest today.
2: Well, thank you, Andreas. You go by that name on the show, don't you? Yeah. Okay. I,
1: I do. I do. Well, you know
2: that me and you have a something in common, in a way. We're both in this business, number one. But number two, that what excited me was, I said one day, "Where are you from, Andreas?" And you said, "Zurich, Switzerland." And I said, is the Atlantis Hotel still there? You know, I stayed there in the 70s with Johnny Cash Show. And you said, yeah. And, uh, and it really surprised me, and they kind of fixed it up. And so uh, we had that in common, that you actually, uh, you know, I, I love Zurich a lot, and you're from there. So I thought, I, I, I've got to like this guy. So it's good to see you.
1: Yeah, and I was surprised to uh, find out that a hotel key of that hotel is at the Storytellers Museum in Bonacqua, um, courtesy of you.
2: Well, I uh, I collected all the keys on the Johnny Cash tour. I did two world tours, and uh, I kept the keys. You know, they don't make keys anymore. They're plastic now. So I don't know if I didn't really sense that coming, but I just kept the keys for my own personal, uh, you know, I didn't have time to get souvenirs. So that was my souvenir. And I had them all in one briefcase, and then they took the whole briefcase full of the two world tours. And it's not in the storytellers. It's at Johnny Cash's uh, farm, which is down the street his hideaway farm and the original log house John lived in uh, that he owned for 30 something years down in Bonacqua and 107 beautiful acres. And they got uh, where he parked his car in the garage, they rebuilt that and made it into Cinnamon Hill, which is like Johnny Cash's name of his house in Jamaica. Now I spent two weeks in Jamaica with John and he wanted to learn how to take photographs. So I taught him. And uh, so this museum has got the keys in it, and uh, it's called Cinnamon Hill, which pictures that John, his first picture that he took, you know, as I taught him. And he had the eye, man. He could do it. So it was a lot easier for him because he automatically fell in love with it. And it was his first real hobby in his life. And so we spent two weeks taking photographs, and I got a lot of great photos of him. They're in there in the museum. And we killed the biggest crocodile in the East Indies there in Jamaica. And Roger Moore had stalked him, you know, who he is. James Bond. Yeah. And he was named one Eye Jack. And he was the biggest one, but he killed a little crop. And so they really wanted to get rid of him before Roger Moore, Steve McQueen, tried to get him, years before that. And uh, he had one eye put out in a croc fight, say. So if you were hunting for him at night with an aircraft landing light on a a jet, on an airboat with an airplane engine, uh, they'll go fast, but so can a croc, you know. But that's a long story. Now they're a picture of the croc and all the teeth. And John took out and made a necklace. That's in the, in the museum as well. So, you know, if you want to see and feel Johnny Cash, you go to his farm where he wrote songs, spent a lot of his time. And he would go down to the, a little country store that he bought. And at one time, it was a post office a couple of times. It was real old then it was a recording studio and then it was back to being a little store and it had a little stage in this old store and then john bought it it was no longer a store but it had to still a little stage in it and he would invite hickman county where it's at to come down and free and he would sing to him when he was off tour free and tries new songs and let other people sing, and it became a Saturday night in Hickman County with Johnny Cash. You know, it's really something that the this guy that now owns the farm and owns the, it kept it in Johnny Cash's uh, life, and now they're both museums, and they put on a show down there, at uh, on Wednesday through Saturday at the Storytellers Museum. Just like John, just carrying the traditional, and Tommy Cash plays down there some, and you know it's a lot of fun, man. You'd have to go check it out, me and you.
1: Absolutely, and you've been associated with and friends with Johnny Cash for a long time. I think it goes back when you were 23 years old, right? And, uh, and you applied for a job on the Johnny Cash TV show. So how did how did you want to work work for him and how did like your relationship with him get started well it
2: it's magical really i was hanging out at wmak a radio station here in nashville because i just finished uh, my went to radio school to be an announcer studied public speaking and all of that and i was gonna be a, a disc jockey and uh, so I'm hanging around up there and and my mother called me and said, "Your daddy uh, my dad got a uh, had me an appointment audition for a job he had he was at the Ramada Inn here on James Robinson in Parkway in Nashville and he overheard some people talking and this is they had all gathered screen Gems and and ABC had gathered and rented. A, the whole bottom floor of the Ramada Inn and had their offices there. So they were getting ready to do uh, uh, the first Johnny Cash Summer Replacement show is what it was, right? At first. And then, of course, it became a regular network show. Now I went down and uh, auditioned for it. I was already not far from it. And my Mama said, Dad wants you to come home and put on a suit to Chance. You know, and I said, I'm not going to come all the way to South Nashville and put on a suit and audition for a job. I'm already down here. So I just went down, and I got the job. You know, they had hired a bunch of people to do uh, cue cards, and uh, they had fired them already. They hired them, and they just couldn't do it, and they fired them. So they started auditioning. You know, they were panicking. And my daddy told him, said, I got the perfect guy for you, my son. He, he can do it. And so I went down and performed my, I've never even seen a coup card. And did it, I, I was good at printing, which helped. And uh, so that very uh, day, I met Johnny Cash down in the, the meeting room. He came down just to talk and talk about the first show, who Bob Dylan was on, you know? So when John walked in the room, the first time I ever seen him in person in my life in 1969 at 23, there was something about him that just lifted me up. His charisma, his personality, his awareness and his voice and his mannerisms that all lit me up. And uh, I thought, I I like this man. He's really, really something about him. So I was really paying attention, you know, and did my job good. And, of course, I had other people doing uh, cue cards. You know, I hired my own people. So then I just, the only one that would do Johnny's, you know, when they had duets or more than one, you had to have du- two sets. So I always did John, so I got to know him real good, and he, he got to trust in me, you know. So that relationship built, and then when the show come back, you know, uh, two seasons, you know, I worked 58 one-hour shows at the Ryman Auditorium with no air conditioning. And, man, that summer replacement was hot you know, with all those lights on in there, them rats running around hitting them goo-goo clusters and popcorn boxes, it was crazy. And, uh, but I tell you what, it was the greatest time of my life, you know. And after 58 shows, Johnny Cash said, well, "One no of chance, he said, I, I can't see you being unemployed. I want you to come out there and go to work for me at the house of Cash. So I went out there and listened to tapes in the publishing house for a long time. And uh, and then, you know, he bought that house in cash. It was a plantation dinner theater. So before all of that, though, before he moved his offices in there, he had them in a duplex behind it he owned by the railroad track. And he put me in there with Bob Wooten, his lead guitar player. And... uh And I said, I I really don't want to live with anybody that close, John. What else you got? You know, anything. So he moved me into Plantation Dinner Theater. He said, I just bought that. It still had all the beds in it where the the actors slept. So, uh, you know, I had a different bed every night and and I could work in there at night and put the slideshow together uh, for his tour that I was planning on getting that job someday and uh, it went on and on, and I went, got to do two, two world tours with him and became his lighting director and did his new souvenir book for the Bicentennial. And as time went along, he on the second printing, he wanted some of his photographs in there. So, you know, it was uh, quite fun, really. And uh, so I kind of invented a lot of special lighting uh, back then, and, effects that country music's never seen because I'd worked rock concerts with the big stars for 15 years also. And uh, I I didn't want to take away from John. I just wanted to get up there with him with the lighting, you know. So knowing how to do that and knowing the artist is, is not that big a challenge. It's just getting it even, you know. And uh, they loved what I did, and uh, Carl Perkins loved it. (laughs) He was along. So, over all those years, man, I just knew all the legends in country music. You know, working television shows. I worked the first, uh, I guess, 15 CMA award shows. You know, last night was, or, yeah, 51st, you know. Makes me feel old. (laughs)
1: but I guess around the same time Johnny Cash gave you his Martin D35 guitar how did that come about
2: well the very uh, 1970 the first full season John had just got that guitar and it had uh, all the inlay of acorns and leaves up on the neck and it was you know the Best sounding guitar I ever heard, and and uh, but he would just leave it at the show and just go home after we'd finish. But at this time, you know, I'm working the TV show. I don't work and leave and go out to his place and work out there. You know, I go home to my own place now. Johnny would leave that guitar, and you know what happens after the show? They tear all the television stuff out, part of the stage, and put it back to normal so they can have a grand old opera. Where's that guitar going to go? It's going to get stolen or broke. I took it home, put it in the case and took it home every night, brought it back with me when I came in to do the rehearsal with John, tuned it. Said and handed it to him. I did that the whole time to the '58 show. I told him, I said, I'm taking it home. I wrote a song, my first song on it already. He published it, you know, called Loser Till You Win. And uh, and I went on to write four, five songs, I think, that he, that he published. And at the end of the '58 show, the last one, it was over. He handed me the guitar as a gift and signed his name on it, I asked him to. And I got him to sign the back of it. He didn't want to sign it on the front, so I said, sign the back. And I kept it 14 years and I wrote that album, that rock album, and played it. Uh, It's an album called In Search, uh, by chance.
1: And we'll talk about that some more, too.
2: And uh, I... uh, he called me up and he said Chance uh, that Martin guitar that I gave you a long time ago he said I want to write this song called Man in White and I want to use that guitar to write and uh, I said well John the guitar don't have any more songs left in it for me and I just can't keep it in tune and there's nothing worse than that for me you know I'm not in love with the guitars like some people. I, I appreciate the quality of this and what it is and who it came from, but I'll I just give it back to you, you know. And uh, you give me another one. And he, I got a uh, a Gibson Gospel, and I kept that. And but anyway, the guitar, I said it's. When I told John this, he, he he was just listening to me like maybe I would, had a drink or something. But listen to this, I said, John. Besides the guitar not having any songs in it anymore for me, it it could go your that could happen to you with the man in white. But I'm not to question that, you know. I said, but the guitar may, it's got a lot of energy for some reason, and, and it's hard to explain. So anyway, I got I took the guitar to him. And two days later, he calls me up and says, Chance, he said, that Martin guitar, he said, I had it in my bedroom last both nights, and he said, it it blew up in the middle of the night and woke me up and scared me to death. It made quite a noise. The bridge blew off of it. And I said, well, I told you, John, it had a lot of energy. <laughs> and he laughed. But, uh, and I said, well, you know, I can't help you with that, man. I don't repair guitars. And anyway, we got a laugh out of it about the energy thing he did. He said, I think you were rushed, son. <laughs> so I don't know if he wrote The Man in White on it or not. Now, I think he wrote The Man in White, but then you know, he had the book, Man in White. So that's, it ended up in the Country Music Hall of Fame. And that's where I wanted it. You know, it was gonna end up there anyway if I, when I got tired of it. And it ended up there, so that's the end of that story. At least the public get to see it now.
0: Yeah.
1: And I guess towards the end of the 70s, you kind of started what, what became the In Search album. Would you mind telling us a little bit about like the genesis of that, and uh, I guess the the local that you call the dead ends, and how that all kind of came together?
2: Okay. Well, uh, well, about in the middle of me working with John and and touring, uh, when I was home from t- between. I was talking to my dad and mom and uh, I said why don't we get y'all get y'all another house see I was still kind of hanging out there and and I had an apartment but I, I had found this house right down the street from their house on a dead end that had this huge bonus room and my dad I took him down there and mom showed him through it so they sold their house and bought that the purpose I wanted was the big bonus room. I wanted to build me a music room there. So after two world tours, uh, I just could not take any more of the road. You know, I was, I was burnt out. And uh, I mean, Johnny Cash worked 90 minutes a day, uh, and I worked 18 hours a day. And, of course, I asked John, I said, what's the hardest part of all this, when this road, this shit, tour thing? And he said, it's getting to and from. And I found that out, that, that'll wear you out. And uh, so, after, I guess, uh, two world tours were up and bicentennial was done, the end of that, I uh, I quit and stopped because i could work television shows i could work movies and i wouldn't have to travel no more and i wanted to build a music room i had to martin guitar so as i started you know my parents moved in and I started fixing this room up me and a friend i put a stage in it a little stage and i put a big bar and a desk and some power cabinets you know, And I made an office and uh, put all the pictures on the wall, painted it flat black and put a moonroof on it and bars on the windows, security at the doors, and you had to have a phone to pick it up and then a little red light come on. Because Then I started putting a band together. And uh, that was the hardest part. It took me a year to put a band together. You know, they'd come and go. Once I got the lead guitar player that I loved, that inspired me to write, you know more, and then I got the rest of the guys, and we were together for almost five years, and we never played anywhere except in the dead end in that bonus room, and we recorded everything we did in there, every rehearsal, and after uh, after a while we had a couple songs, and uh, we'd, uh, I had this uh, limousine company that wanted to get in Opryland and start driving for the TV show, and I said, well, I'll get you in, get you started, if you'll drive my band for free when we go to the recording studios, so I got a limo, a couple of them at times, and, uh, and they'd carry our equipment down there, and we'd go in at 10 or 11 or And start around midnight, so you know they were generally through by then. And uh, we did that for the whole all those years. And I got them in, so we had free limousine service. And we went at night because nobody was there. You know, people walking in and out. We had our own engineer, who was the Ronnie Light, famous engineer, did Whalen's for. Country music's first gold album, and uh, he understood understood when I said I want to turn the two inch over and do something backwards. For some reason, he he didn't mind doing any of that, so we were comfortable with him, and uh, so we would record at night. And after we after a total of five years, we had thirteen songs, and then. I pressed uh, an album, had my own publishing, my own record label, and then I had an agent in Hollywood, and I took it out there, but disco had disrupted this whole rock and roll thing. So my timing was bad, so I only had a 1,000 copies pressed, and I gave away, uh, I don't know, about 300 copies, never sold any, and then I put the rest in a storage building. Because when I went out to Hollywood, my the biggest agent out there, and I'm not going to mention his name. He's passed away now. But he, uh, he said, well, I, I gave it to the people, Chance, and what are we going to do with this now? Because of all of these problems, that they're, they're all freaked out. They're not really can think. And I said, well, don't worry about it. I just went on back home. I was out there a month and enjoyed myself. You know, my motto is wherever you go have fun because you're going to be there anyway. So I, I just enjoyed myself. I didn't get upset about nothing. I came home, put them in, uh, left them in the storage building and forgot about it for 32 years. I didn't have a band anymore and we just all broke up. And they went their own ways and uh, Uh, My guitar player got killed in a car wreck, so I can't get back and do no more. So I'm glad that uh, 32 years later, this label called me from Philadelphia, Paradise of Bachelors. And uh, it stunned me. I was working for Cowboy Jack Clement, Country Music Hall of Famer, for eight years. And they called there, and I happened to answer the phone. And I told the man, he said, are you... Who is this? I'm looking for Chance Martin, uh, who did an album, In Search, by Chance. Uh, I said, well, I'm Chance Martin. And the voice, he didn't say nothing. I said, hello. He said, "Uh, uh, I'm so nervous I can hardly talk to you now. You know, because he found me after six months of looking for me. And I I said, well, uh, take a volume, drink a beer, and call me back and hung up on it. I thought, you know. It was. I thought it was a joke to begin with. So I just joked along. And about 15 minutes, he called me back. He said, I'm okay now. <laughs> so anyway, I said, if you're serious, mail me, you know, $500. Send it to me. And then we'll continue with this. He said, okay. And then I signed the contract. They flew down both both owners and stayed in Nashville three days and interviewed me each day. And uh, they did a great job on on a book and an album. And and uh, I'm really proud of the remake. As far as the album opens up with photos and just something like that to happen to me. I only wanted a little recognition in Nashville. Cause it was country music, and I mean, I was this album just out there, man. You know, and the reviews were always good, though and crazy, uh, but they'd always say masterpiece or genius or something. Which uh, you know, I don't like to read reviews, but and then it'd scare me at first, and then it'd mellow out to that, and then I felt okay about it. I you know don't believe what you read so it don't matter but
1: well by any means it was one of the most eclectic albums ever recorded in Nashville I think it's a, as if like somebody like Frank Zappa would have come to to Nashville to make a record They
2: mentioned him and me in places in other interviews uh he'd got a lot of coverage they sent a New York uh uh lady down here to you know talk to me and interview me and take pictures and uh she was quite nice cute wasn't married and she came out to the house where i live her and a guy and hung out some more after the shoot and talking to me so they were enjoying their time with me too and i appreciate that because i enjoyed the time with them like i do with you and uh, doing my radio show here
1: yeah did you know at that time that the album kind of became a cult classic because it started selling on eBay for hundreds of dollars. Were you aware of that or did those people tell you that?
2: Well I wasn't aware of it and no they didn't tell me either. All of a sudden I get this phone call again from a stranger and I think they were in Texas and, or, and they wanted to, buy, wanted to know if I had some copies. And they told me they'd give me $50 a copy and buy several. And I thought, well, hey, you know, I happen to have I have a few copies, so 50 a piece, and they wanted maybe five or $600 worth. At leaves me plenty. So I sold them to them. And I said, now, what are y'all gonna get for them? And he said, well, I'd like to tell you, but maybe you wouldn't sell them to me for 50. I said, no, that's fine, Fifty's fine. I don't care what you sell them for, 1,000 or whatever. Or you can sell them for five dollars. It's your business. He said, "Well, they there's been a few going for three hundred dollars." You know, so I said, "Well, okay, good." So I said, "Send me a box, exactly for that many albums with the packing and the money in it." And they did, you know, with the money. And I just stuck them in, mailed them back, postage. They paid the postage and everything I asked. And then later on, another one out of New Orleans called me and did the same thing. And that's the two times when I found out about eBay and the price. And I thought they were kidding, but it wasn't a joke. It's true. Which uh, <laughs> I could have used that other two hundred fifty dollars.
1: <laughs> yeah, and he must be feeling pretty good too to know that actually there's such a demand for a record that initially you know you 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 did you couldn't find a label for it i guess
2: well i had a label i wasn't looking for a label i was looking really for well the major label was my first stop you know because i had full control of this i could make a deal with anybody but you know that didn't happen and uh I went around still all in Hollywood and dropped off an album, and I got letters from all the major labels. I still went out and hand-delivered it to Front Desk like a, an idiot, but it still put them, lays them around, you know. So I did that for fun, too. We enjoyed walking around in Hollywood and going up to the Capitol building. So I got nice letters telling me, you know, they can't use this at this time, that kind of generic letter and I kept all those and you know uh, that's the reason I did it because I knew I'd get a a letter
0: yeah
1: (laughs) so after you you worked for Johnny Cash initially you mentioned that you you kept doing some more TV related
2: um... Well, I was doing that while I was doing this rock album yeah that's that's what paid for it
1: and you worked on a on a Grammy show, and there's a story that also involves Ringo Starr and Harry Nilsson. What's that story?
2: Oh, you know, with well, I became really famous with the cue card business. Hollywood tried to buy me out. They wanted me to do the Dayton game and the Newlywed game. Right in the middle of Johnny Cash, so they wanted to take it and trade, let me go there. I said, why would I do that, Johnny Cash? You wanna give me the day and game well, you crazy. You know, get out of town. So I got another shot. I did some hee haul cue cards. That was a lot of fun and working. And then I, I actually got an opportunity to audition to do the Grammys in Nashville. Uh, they hadn't been back <laughs> they was at the Tennessee Theater on Church Street and andy williams was the host that year i can't remember what grammy award number was but anyway auditioned uh, with uh, and then i tend to see marty Prisetta and uh, that other famous producer uh pierre cosette auditioned to them and i said well i'm gonna have to have a thousand in advance I'm just that kind of guy at young age. And they said, no problem. Gave me this check. And that told me I had the job. I mean, they cut it. And the girl did and ran in and ran back. And before I knew it, I was taken down to the theater. And uh, they were showing me around. And I figured I'm going to have to have about 2,000 pounds of cards and have this big easel built. And, and so I'm all set up after all the panic. The cue cards are all printed, and they are about 2,000 pounds of them on a nasal that are huge. Out about 10 rows back at the theater in the middle. So I had a—since I was going to—actually, I I told them I was going to retire from cue cards and give the company to a a guy for a dollar. And uh, so Channel 5 came down, CBS affiliate, and interviewed me about that and shot it for the news— And so here comes the people in to do the Grammys, and Ringo Starr comes in, and he's at the hotel, turns the news on and sees me, right? So now they're walking in, they're coming to the rehearsal at the theater for the Grammys. They're walking down the aisle at the theater, and I'm, you know, three-fourths way down. So I'm the first person they see, because there's no people in the audience. And he stops and says, you're Chance Martin, the world's largest cue card holder. He said, I'm Ringo star. I said, oh, I know who you are. And he said, I want you to meet my friend Nilson Smilson. This is Chaunce Martin. And I, I thought, my goodness, man, I'm peaking again on this cue card business. How good does it get when you're retiring and Ringo comes up to you and knows your name? You know, if I hadn't done that little story, he wouldn't have never done that. You know, it's kind of like when I met Bob Dylan on Johnny Cash's TV show. Johnny Cash says, hey, Chance, come here. I want you to meet uh, my friend Bob Dylan. And I'll walk over. And uh, they're sitting together there in, the, uh, in in a set there on the Opry stage, rhyming. And he, he just looks at me, and I don't stick my hand out because Bob doesn't. And he leans over and whispers in John's ear, and then he leans back, kind of looks at me. And Johnny said, Bob said it was good to meet you, Chance. Is that a great one or not? I'll take that over a handshake any day, because that's more exciting to tell that story.
1: Absolutely.
2: You know, oh, I shook Bob Dylan's hand. So what, you know?
1: Yeah, and after you did those world tours with Johnny Cash? You also did some shows with some other, like rockers. You worked somewhere like Alice Cooper.
2: Well, here in Nashville, yeah, uh, and Alice Cooper was really a nice guy. You know, I I set the guillotine up where he cut the head off, and uh, me and uh, Alice walked around. He wanted to walk around the auditorium here, the municipal auditorium, and he wanted me to show him where the restroom was. And I said, well, you got one here in your dressing room that's about 10 feet away. He said, well, no, I just want to walk around. And, uh, he said, let's just walk around and talk. And I thought, well, cool, you know. I just uh, met him then, and we're talking and walking, and we talk about golf a little. I mean, some odd stuff, you know. And then we passed the men's room. I said, there it is. And he said, oh, there's got to be another one. And we went all the way around, you know. He goes all the way around at uh, 360 degrees, and he picked one out. And uh, I just waited outside uh, in the hallway, and he came out, and uh, he went back, and he says, anything you want, let me know. You know, and that was kind of my uh, thing there, other than working the show and the guillotine. But. Opportunities just to spend time with somebody, you know. He was the first guy doing rock Broadway type stuff, man, that I'd ever seen. And uh, I worked some Broadway plays and nice when they come around on tour. And but uh, they're they're not. I don't enjoy them like I do rock concerts or, uh, well, the Rolling Stones and. I met Mick Jagger, he came to Johnny Cash show. and But nobody knew he was there, John didn't. So after the concert, John just had left immediately after the show, and I'm getting ready to go up there and tell the stage crew what to do, take this out and this, fly that in, get this show out of town and moving on. And all of a sudden, there's a guy standing on the stage in the middle of the stage with his back to me when I'm up walking up on the stage. And I spun this guy around because they're flying a pipe in. And I said, hey, man, you got to get off the stage. And I spun him around and I said, excuse me, Mick. <laughs> it was Mick Jagger. And I said, uh, what, are you, what are you doing? He said, I, I was wanting to see uh, Johnny Cash. And I said, uh, Well, he's left the building already. I said, but I'll tell you what. I'll take you to him, to his uh, suite in the hotel. If you can give me a ride to the hotel. He said, okay. So he had Bianca with him. And I said, y'all sit over in the wings in two chairs in about 15 minutes. Can you wait 15 minutes? Yeah. So they sat over and waited on me, and then I got Mick Jagger driving me. <laughs> oh, it's, you know, it's moments like that, man.
1: Yeah. You also got to meet Michael Jackson, the young Michael Jackson.
2: Oh yeah, I played Frisbee with him, man, when he was a young boy with the Jackson Five. It was in the Municipal Auditorium as well. And uh, during the uh, sound check, he was out there wanting to flip Frisbee, so uh, we got out there, and. They hadn't put the uh, seating in the middle, so we ran around throwing frisbee, and I was throwing it back and forth to him. We had about three or four frisbees, you know. They just broke out a bunch of them, and I just was throwing them with little Michael, never knowing how big he was gonna be someday. But he was pretty good with a frisbee. He kept me moving. <laughs> yeah,
1: and you also ended up writing a song with Towns Van Sand.
2: Well, uh, Towns Van Zandt. yeah, and some lady poured out uh, and knocked a drink over on it, made me and Towns met, and we got up and left. That was it. <laughs>
1: so that was the end of that song?
2: Yeah, yeah, unfortunately, yeah. It was at the uh, ASCAP meeting. You know, we should have been listening, but we were writing the song. All right,
1: It's a good story, though.
2: Yeah, I, I kind of like to have those lyrics, you know, but at least I got to know Townsend's there. Another great thing.
1: Absolutely. And you got to work on some movies too, like Robert Altman's Nashville. I oh, mean, buddy. That how did was that fun. come about?
2: That was fun. Well, the union gave me the job, and that uh, was a long movie. I think it took us eight weeks or something along like that, and uh, so it was good money. And uh, Robert Altman was really a, a, a different kind of director to watch and to work with, and that was really the reason why I wanted to be on it. And actually I had his I had his son working with me, which was even more interesting. And, uh, you know, he was younger than me, and I knew more about it, I think, than he did, and he appreciated it, and he knew how to be and act, and he was good at what he did. And uh, so we enjoyed each other, and uh, and th- that was a pretty wild movie. It really was. It was. We went to the Parthenon, you know. and We were all over the place, interstates and wrecks and and all kinds of things. It was.
1: It was good. What What was like? What did you have to do? What What was your you? I was job working
2: or- in in sound. I I was the wireless man. I worked all the actors, and uh, there was a bunch of them. You know, he had eight things going on at one time, you know how he is. He always had a lot of a lot of stories going at the same time in most of his shows, movies. And uh, he's gone now, looking great, but I'm glad that I got to work around him.
1: And you worked on more movies after that too?
2: John Alvison was the director on this movie. Uh, I worked with uh, W.W. and the Dixie Dance Kings with Burt Reynolds. And uh, that was really a lot of fun because it was done here in Nashville. It was a period movie back in the 50s. And everything on lower broad had to be changed, you know. And and, uh, we had to cover up the Magic Fingers uh, sign down there. That was when the massage parlors took over uh lower broad where you weren't around here oh they just about run they did run you know but they were filming this and and uh, we cover they paid and we cover up the signs and paid them you know everything had to be changed uh everything you seen had to be from the 50s so being the set decorator on that with another guy the real set decorator from hollywood he Broke his arm or something, fell or hurt himself, and he just stayed at the hotel. And uh, we went out and shopped and got all of the stuff. Rent it, buy it, you know, with a truck, and put it in the gas station, and they'd blow it up, and then, <laughs> you know, we had a gas station uh, blow up, and then we had to put it back together. We're gonna, let's do that one again. You know, that take two, you know, so. Putting it back together, not a lot of fun. <laughs> but, you know, uh, you had a lot of great stars in that. I, I think Don Williams was in that. And uh, Jerry Reed was in it. And uh, remembering all the, the actors in some of those is kind of vague to me, but I got the main ones that I liked. and Yeah, and then I worked uh, with Sean Penn and Christopher Walken a movie, Uh, this time I didn't want to work the movie, I just wanted to go down, so I got this uh, agent is get me a bit part in it, different agent, so I could just go down and hang out and have a bit part. So I got to hang out with uh, Sean Penn and Christopher Walken and watch them act, and then they said they were going to a Kwanzaa hut place where they kept all their stolen stuff they stole, At Close Range is the name of the movie. Have you seen it? I'm driving this forklift inside that Kwanzaa hut, and this actor jumps up on the front of it, and I bring him in, and he was scared to death. He's been in a lot of movies. I can't think of his name, but uh, kind of a method-type actor, and he's been in Bond movies, all kinds of movies. man. And he said, can you drive this forklift? I'm a little afraid. And I said, that's why they hired me. I'm a professional forklift driver. Get on. <laughs> but when we were sitting out there waiting on our bit parts, they said, anybody here drive a forklift? I raised my hand. I said, well, I'm a professional forklift driver. And so they took, got me a scene. And uh, I, you can see me in the movie, so that was the only reason I went and to watch them. Yeah. So I used to get to do a lot of things I wanted to do. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, you have certainly have one of the most interesting lives of anybody I know.
2: Oh, yeah. I, I Really, I'm happy with my life. and I, I miss all my friends that have died on me, though, you know. Yeah. Johnny Cash and Waylon. And the list is so long. And
1: somebody else that was really important to you was Cowboy Jack Clement. How did you hook up with, with him?
2: Well, the, through his engineer, uh, who was 17, David R. Ferguson, they call him the Ferg. He he's, uh, did all of Johnny's American records, engineered him. He was the gopher when he first went to work for Jack, but I'd met him and he wanted to introduce me to, to Cowboy. And that's how I met him over at the studio. But you know, on this rock album, I recorded uh, two songs at his historic, uh, Jack Clement studio has a, a historic marker over there now. The Sound Emporium. Yep. I, I didn't know Jack, but I went over because I'd heard of him and uh, knew that the studio existed. Uh, back in, uh, I don't know, 1980 or something, I went there. And, it was a little expensive to go in at midnight. I think it's 150 an hour. And the first hour, we um, my thing is the first hour, we don't do anything. We just sit there and let the instruments breathe. And the guys may want to have a beer and relax, talk to the engineer. I would about what we're going to do. But the first hour, we paid for it to do nothing. So that was $150 to get the band comfortable. So I thought, I can't do this no more, and I got to get a better deal, you know, because I got a long ways to go here, so. But anyway, uh, I later met Cowboy Jack, and then uh, after uh, me and Ferg did some recordings and made up this name, Alamo Jones, for some fake commercials we wanted to do just for fun. And then... uh, I had those fake commercials uh, of Alamo Jones and this name we made up. And so I took the name Alamo Jones and decided to, uh, I'd never been a disc jockey, remember? I went to school to be one in the 60s and now I went in to work for Johnny and Television on ABC, so I never got to do any radio in, until 2005 when I had uh, this CD that uh, New York came down to get Jack Clement to do a radio show on Sirius Radio before Sirius XM joined. And uh, they told Jack he needed uh, maybe needs a sidekick on the show. Ferg was up in the studio and heard him and was with him. In the meeting I was down, I had an office at Jack's at the time and I was down in my office and Ferg came down and said, you got that CD we did on them fake commercials? I said, yeah. So I gave it to him. He went up there and played it for this guy from New York and he said, that's the man. I don't think Jack even knew who the guy was. and I'm there all the time, you know, because I used that name. And uh, so when I went to work, I became Alamo Jones, his sidekick for eight years. So we did uh, a lot of shows eight years every weekend together. That was a lot of fun because, see, the reason I was hanging around, he, he started with Johnny Cash at Sun Records, and they were friends. So I thought, you know, there's a lot to both them two guys being still good friends, and John came to see Jack a lot over here at his studio on Belmont. And I was working there, so I got to see John even though I wasn't working for him anymore. And that was always fun. We'd do dueling caches, you know. uh, We would. I'd I'd say I'm Johnny Cash, and he'd say he's Johnny Cash, and we'd argue back and forth who was really Johnny Cash. We would do that in front of strangers, though. We did that several times all over the place together. He thought that was the greatest thing. (laughs) And he knew that I used that Uh, when he was alive to get things to work. You know, like on the road when the auditorium wasn't cooperating and the stage crew didn't want to do nothing. I'd go get on a pay phone. They didn't have cell phones then. And call and be Johnny Cash. I'd call the auditorium and tell them, Do I need to come down there, you know, understand you're having a little problems down there with the crew. You know, and and tore all the pieces as steward of the job, and then I just hang up and walk back around. order to them, walk back up to the crew sitting down. They jumped up and started bowing almost, you know. And I said, What's what came over y'all? You decide you want to do something, yes, sir. What, what's next? What's first? No, all of a sudden, they're just right on it. And I tell John that he, he loved it. You know, and uh, I'd I'd use it when I was not doing anything, trying to get a room at a hotel in Gatlinburg or somewhere, and they said, we're sold out, and I'd hang up and call back and tell them I Johnny Cash, and they had a room. So, you know, it was a lot of fun. It really was.
1: And, (laughs) And he named you the voice in black, too, didn't he?
2: Yeah, he did, and I didn't ever... Think about it, or use it until I did a country album, the only one I've done in uh four or five years ago called Alamo Jones: the Voice in Black, and I wrote all the songs on that, and uh I put it out on his birthday, you know, of course, he was passed away. I wish he would have been alive when I did the album. He would have liked it, you know. Yeah.
1: And uh, would you mind describing a little bit uh, how the Cowboy Arms Hotel and Recording Spa was like?
2: (laughs) There was not another another place in Nashville like it. It was well known that a lot of people had their own keys. You know, John Prine maybe. Lots of people, you know. There were people hanging out like Alan Reynolds and John Prine. Alan Reynolds did all Garth Brooks hits, you know, and even bought one of Jack's studios. And Alan Reynolds and Cowboy Jack Lemmon were big friends. And Dickie Lee, he moved, he relocated those guys in life from Beaumont, Texas, to Memphis, to Nashville, back to Memphis. You know, wherever he'd move, he'd convince them to move there. And as you see, when they finally got here, it all worked out. You know. Uh, but anyway. Yeah. Did I answer that? Absolutely.
1: <laughs> and that's where they shot part of that infamous movie, too, where Johnny Cash is in it and all that. Oh, the home movie. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, Johnny. See, Cowboy Jack Clement's home movies are George Jones was. Uh, uh, Shakespeare fan or something I don't remember the name of it but it won the uh, Nashville Film Festival uh, and it was fun to see myself on the screen in a theater as a cartoon character because I played uh, Shakespeare and I told them when they asked me to do it you know Cowboy and All I remember, the director that was going to put Jack's Home Movies together they had to shoot new stuff to segue it all together and they wanted me to be Shakespeare. And I said, well, with a Johnny Cash kind of voice. And, and I said, well, I took the director outside walked me around and I said, I'm not gonna wear the collar and I'm not gonna dress up like that. So I, I'll, I'll tell you what I'm gonna do and I'm not gonna shoot anything out here in this hot summer's outside in the heat. As long as we do something inside, I've thought about all of this, so I've come to the conclusion that I'll do this. If you'll, I'll sell you a great suggestion for this part for fifty dollars if you want it. Do you want to hear it? If you use it, you have to pay me fifty dollars. He said, "Okay, I want to hear it. It's worth fifty dollars to hear it." I said, "If you don't, you know, if you don't like it, you don't have to pay." I said I want to be a cartoon character, left-handed, guitar playing, with a beer. Shaky beer, shaky is nickname. Shake. So have you seen the movie? Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, that that was all my idea, and then they used it on Cowboy Jack once in the car, and uh, he gave me the fifty dollars. So there again, you know. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes my suggestions are hard to turn down. (laughs) Yeah. You really have to know what it needs in order to suggest something like that to a director. Because you're uh, really taking a big chance on it because you've already said you weren't going to dress up. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I didn't really care if I was going to be in it or not, but if I was, it was going to have to be my way. Yeah. That's the outlaw country way.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So, you've been doing the Cowboy Jack Clement Show with him for a while, and then his health kind of got worse, and your role became more prominent, and when he passed, you took over that show. How uh, was that something? Was that a natural for you, or is that something you had to think about a lot? No,
2: it was something I was hoping that would happen when I first went to work with Cowboy on doing the show. I didn't know how long, but eight years is a pretty good while. And I loved every show we did. And But when he got sick, and he was still working on the show, you know, uh, it was my first experience to work with or be around anybody that was getting uh, dementia and Alzheimer's type type thing, you know. He never really had that, but he was, uh, he couldn't remember anything except for his songs, you know. Yeah. That's how that works. Glenn Campbell, you know, he didn't hardly know anything, but he could still sing his songs, you know. And uh, that's pretty wild, huh? It's something to think about. Uh but anyway it was kinda hard because it hurt me that he was getting that sick and I watched him I watched him take his last breath. And that's something I I don't wanna ever do again. I didn't watch mom and dad die and I never watched anybody else die and I watched Jack. I was in there with him and on you know, his bed and and his son, just me and his son. And uh, you know, that was a sad day. And uh, then that's the day that they gave me the show. The New York guy was here, came down, and uh, he told me I wanted it to be your show now. So it's about four years ago, wasn't it? Something yeah. like
1: that. And uh, it's still going strong. And about, I guess, a year and a half ago, you guys moved to show to Creative Workshop where we are today.
2: That's right. Now, I've known uh, uh, Buzz Kason that owns the studio, a great artist, songwriter. I've known him for years and years, and, uh, and I really, 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 I've been coming here for uh, First Tuesday, gift, uh, uh, where we get together and have a prayer meeting and guest speakers and all kinds of great songwriters, you know and over all those years i've just felt so comfortable here uh like home or something you know it's a family type feeling you get and uh, a, a spiritual thing to me and uh and parker my engineer who is buzz's son buzz's son and me and him just click and get this job done so fast so easy and so enjoyable you know that it just, it's like meant to be almost, you know? I can't really prove that, but <laughs> but I do feel so good about be doing it here, and it sounds good. The show sounds great from here. Yeah, and well, this it? studio's been here since 1970, and uh, it's historic itself.
1: It is, and one other thing that now, I... Jack
2: Clements at the first studio in Nashville in 1970, and then there was Buzz Kaysen, so they were the first two independent studios in Nashville.
1: Yeah. Another thing is neat, you got reunited with the grand piano who was on the Johnny Cash Show.
2: Boy, when I found that out, and, you know, Bill Walker Orchestra, You know Now, when you listen to Sunday morning coming down with Johnny Cash singing, he's reading my cue cards. He did not know the lyrics. And I would not put the word home on that. You know, uh, Hollywood and ABC and all them, they said you can't use the word stone. Lord, I wish I was stone. You do. Lord, I wish I was home. I went to John, of course, like I always did right before that moment. And I showed him the cue cards, and I said, John, I put the real lyrics, Chris, is up there on the up in the balcony over on stage right. And I said, I, I just think it needs to be Chris's words, and you do that. And he says, I do too. So I said, you can blame me. Read the cards. And then you can say, if they panic, you say, well, I'm just reading the cards. So anyway, he said it. Yeah, and then so when you listen to it, that's I hear I heard it today, uh, and uh, on the radio, and uh, it's live when Bill Walker's playing all of that. Right here's the piano now in the creative workshop.
1: Yeah, it sure is. And yeah, for me yeah. just knowing. So I
2: got Bill Walker, uh, Bill Walker on my show.
1: Absolutely. And knowing that all these great people like Ray Charles and Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, played that piano, that's I had
2: that's Bill Walker on here, didn't I? Yeah. 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 And, uh, that kind of stunned him. I called him out of nowhere. And of course, he remembers me. And uh, he couldn't, he really would do it, you know. And uh, he did. And he was great. I, I liked him. Liked his wife. They were both nice people. And uh, they're still together. It's a beautiful thing, man. Absolutely.
1: So, what what does the future hold for you? Do you have any any plans that you still would like to see come to fruition?
2: Well, you know, it's a little foggy to me. Uh, i feel pretty good about everything I've done, and uh, I, 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 I've. I'm not sure if I'm going to ever do any more songs or not. I'm I'm trying to come to that conclusion in my own personal head because at times I feel like, well, no, I'm not going to record anymore. But then again, I still want to, you know. I don't know about doing a whole album, but I'd like to do, you know, a couple singles every now and then for fun. Uh, I want to continue doing the radio show as long as they'll let me because it's uh, it's just a natural thing for me and i enjoy it and uh, so i don't know you know nashville is not the same as it was never will be and i'm glad that i i grew up here you know i came out of high school not too far from over here in south nashville Glencliff, <laughs> and uh things have really changed uh parking for one thing is so expensive uh you know, I, I did so many shows at the Bridgestone Arena down there. Eight years on Lower Broad, and their their headquarters, the Tower, of Nashville's headquarters. Uh, it's a, it's nice. It's pretty cool, like a you know a fantasy place. But you got to pay to park, and uh, and if you have guests, they have to pay. And if they're playing instruments like an upright bass, it's a lot of work on these people to do a show free. To promote the record, so uh, Jack was this way. He thought we need to do this here at his studio, and we did a few there. But he didn't want to pay the engineer, so he would go down there, and that his producer it, But he really uh, wanted to do it at his house all the time, you know. But you know, he had a driver for it, so it wasn't so bad. You know, they drop us off and pick us up, so I like that. Because it can get bad down there during the CMA Awards. I like to never got in. They weren't going to let me go in. I said, I got to do a show. They don't care. You don't have the proper ID, CMA. I thought, no, nah, but I worked the first seven or first 15 or whatever it was, and I, I know about, more about the CMA than you do. You're just a security guy that ain't going to let me go to work for Series XM in that building. There's something wrong with this. And so they said, well, you can go, but you can't go this way. You got to walk, you know, three blocks that way and go down. And, I'm, you know, so the time I walked the extra mile and got up to the, the thing, and from I was wore out, you know, tired and ready to sit down and not do a job. So I thought, well, I gotta get some a little more. I'll get there eventually, and that's where I'm at now. I've eventually got that gold a year and a half. And that now my guests can have it, nice, peaceful, free parking. You know, Berry Hills. What's happening, man? Yeah. You leave Berry Hill, you go toward Nashville. You got a screw loose. You need to go toward this way to Mount Juliet and get out of town. Yeah. <laughs> And you're surrounded
1: by all this history in here, too, so it's... It
2: feels like my place where I live, (laughs) you know. It didn't make my wife happy. Uh, She put up with it 17 years, you know. She wanted to decorate. Of course, all ladies do. Hank 3 has that problem, you know, with this place. You know, his wife never got to do any decorating, even in the bathroom, because he had it covered with, posters and and uh but i didn't ever know that you know and uh she finally said take your museum and get out uh so we're best friends but she, she was she didn't really say that but i think it's a good line for it <laughs> Absolutely. that's what i want her to say <laughs> yeah.
1: and we're so glad and honored that you you know decided to come here to do your show and uh Well, You know, we'll always, you know, be here for you.
2: Well, everybody here is true, sweet, great people, man. Uh, Buzz, Patricia, Buzz's secretary, and you work with, and Parker. I mean, how could you not? When you go to a place, you want to feel like you love everybody, you know, and trust them and care for them. It's a big feeling to me. I mean, if you can't get that, heck, why do it?
1: Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, we covered a lot of ground today, and I would like to thank you for being my guest today and just uh, wish you all the very best.
2: And I wish you the very best, and I'll tell you what, it was great to sit down with you and uh, and do this. It really was, and we've talked about it, we finally got around to having the time to do this, and uh, so this goes out on your webcast?
1: Yeah, it's going to be on the website. It's also going to be on YouTube and iTunes and all that, So pe- and I'll make sure that people know about it.
2: Okay, great, man. Uh, I guess we covered a lot of ground. Uh, at least we picked it up from the time I was 23.
1: Yeah, maybe we have to do another one. and We'll cover the first 20 things. Now, I think you said something
2: uh, earlier uh, before before we started the interview. Have you got a second?
1: Absolutely. The,
2: about what made me first decide that, about music, right? Yeah. Or is that exactly the question? Absolutely. Uh, when I was a little bitty boy, let's see, what year was it? Well, I was probably uh, maybe uh, nine, eight. I'm trying to think of the year, fifty four or five. I uh, I I didn't really know what radios were, you know, and my mom and dad had this little wooden radio and they'd listen to the Grand Ole Opry and stuff, but. I never listened, I never paid much attention to the radio, period. One day I was cutting through uh, in the house, I was a little boy, and still playing with cars and stuff, and cutting through, and I heard this voice come through that, that little box, you know, little wooden box, that's what I called it. I didn't know it was a radio. And I said, Mama, have that. that voice get in that box who is that and she said I think they said Elvis somebody and it turned out it was Elvis Presley that's our mama and that's the first song I heard in my life that drew me to wanting to know what that box is which became a radio and uh, so I was a little sheltered, wasn't I, in a way. But that's what drew me to music, and uh, I worked with Elvis some, so I got got to do that.
1: Yeah. And now your voice is coming out of that wooden box every week.
2: Yeah, oh <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, car radios and stuff. Yeah, and uh, it's something when when you go through a little uh, so many years, and you what goes around comes around. So I didn't plant any bad seeds. I planted good seeds, and like Mom and Dad taught me, and uh, it all came back pretty good. You know, like this interview. You wouldn't be interviewing me if uh, if you didn't think I was interesting.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, that's been one of my favorite interviews so far. So thank you so much for your time,
2: Andreas, It was a pleasure, buddy, and. Uh, And you take care of yourself, and maybe someday if I do something great again, we'll get back again.
1: Sounds good to me. And do
2: another interview, an update. Uh,
1: Absolutely. (laughs) All right,
2: pal, take care of yourself.
1: You too, thank you. All
2: right, bye-bye.
1: This was the ninth episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. We taped it at the Creative Workshop Recording Studio in Berry Hill, my favorite studio in Nashville. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. See you next week.